Hello there. Welcome to Positive Changes, a self-kick podcast. I'm your host, Shelley F. Knight. I'm a former nurse and clinical hypnotherapist, term podcaster and author of Positive Changes, a self-kick book and Good Grief, the A to Z approach of modern day grief healing. In each episode, I aim to share my clinical, spiritual, and personal experience to help you feel inspired to create your own positive changes in life. Fear not, it's not just me. Each week, I will bring on a new guest and they will share their authentic story of positive change and the tools that they used on their journey. So if you're ready to be inspired, let's go. This week on Positive Changes, I'm a little bit starstruck. I am joined by Hollywood director, Emmy Award-winning producer, writer, New York best-selling author, Lionel Friedberg. Lionel has brought the world documentaries and theater productions, and today he's bringing us his captivating story of how a job loss led him to consulting a shaman in a mud hut in Africa. I share snippets of my spirituality, on my Shelley F. Knight Instagram page and my Satsang Sisters Facebook group. But Lionel's level of spiritual experiences are absolutely mind-blowing. In order to continue to survive, no matter how difficult and dangerous and uh, you know traumatic things may be, there's always a way around. And go outside the box, think outside the norm, expand your vision embrace whatever you can to help you to heal and to move forward because i've done it myself and i wanted to share this with people which is one of the reasons why i wrote this book join us as we journey through the rich culture of african shamans sangormas predictions ufos and oneness grab a drink an open mind and get comfortable as we come to meet the wonderful lionel friedberg So today on the show, I'm absolutely honoured to be joined by the Emmy Award winning producer and New York Times bestselling author, Lionel Friedberg. Lionel has spent over 50 years making films as diverse and as full length theatrical features and TV documentaries. So a big warm welcome to Lionel. Hi, Shelley. Lovely to be with you. Thank you. I'm absolutely honoured. I've seen your work for years. So thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's entirely my pleasure, I can assure you. Bless you. Now, you have this most amazing book called Forever in My Veins, and it's quite a story, and I'd love you to share part of your life story with us today. Um, It's difficult to know where to plunge in uh, to begin the story, but really the through line, if you like, the the glue that holds it all together. Um, The way I wrote the book is it was the fact that I discovered I had a a, a pretty serious illness some years ago. And um, and I was diagnosed with a, a, a rather serious kidney condition, uh, uh, and which the, my nephrologist couldn't understand why I was getting it. So they called it idiopathic. It's just and that's another medical word for saying we don't know what it is or why you've got it. Um, 
And then um, I, I suddenly realized after I was diagnosed with this illness that, oh my God, why didn't I realize this? This was predicted 60 years ago. And so I went back in time in my book with the readers and I've taken them on, on, on that journey where my whole life basically unfolded according to a, a way that was described to me by a little old lady in a mud hut in Africa, Central Africa, in, in what is now Zambia, years and years and years ago. She basically foretold everything that came to pass, including this illness. And so I take the reader with me on this journey. And what this journey has been all about is not only what I've done as a filmmaker and the amazing people I've met and the remarkable subjects that I've been blessed to be able to um, deal with and make films about, but also how I started to learn about the healing systems of African shamans, otherwise in Southern Africa known as Sangomas, a Sangoma is a Zulu word that basically means soothsayer, if you like. Um, but this little old lady that I first met was in Zambia, used to be Northern Rhodesia before it became uh, Zambia. And they, in that part of the world, they call themselves Ngangas. And, you know, let me tell uh, you how it all happened. I grew up in South Africa as an only child. And I grew up during the apartheid system, which was a pretty iniquitous a kind of a system to, in, in which to grow up and be exposed to. Because even as a child, it was very, very evident to all of us, to, certainly to me. Um, you know, you walk down the road and a black person would be walking down a road and a police car would suddenly stop and ask that person for their papers. You know, so it was like a, like a World War II Nazi movie, where are your papers? You know, and if they did not have permission to be in that spot at that time, they all had to carry a little passbook which had to be stamped every year by the authorities. If they did not have permission to be there, they would be thrown into the van and rustled off to prison and sent back to their tribal homeland. And the South African government, bless their hearts, in invented these 13 different territories all over South Africa that they called Bantustans, which were really a traditional tribal homelands where the various tribes came from. So no matter how, if that person was born in an urban white city, it doesn't matter. If they didn't have their passbook in order, they would be sent back to their tribal area, their ethnic area, if you like. And it was pretty dreadful. And, you know, as a child, I saw this many, many times. And we were all privileged people. We were all privileged whites. We all had nannies and we all had servants. And um, uh, it, it, was, it was an amazing world in which to grow up, but it, you, you were conscious of this all the time. And even at school, by the way, there was a subject called um, social studies, which basically learned about the races and the fact that we whites were superior beings to everybody else. They, we were there to civilize the continent. You know, that's the, that, that was the, the, enshrined in the curriculum as I grew up as a child in the educational system. Oh. Anyway, we're not going to get into all this racism stuff because it's, that's, that's old news now. South Africa is now a completely different country. Um, you know, the walls of apartheid came tumbling down round about the same time as the Berlin Wall came tumbling down. And of course, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison, uh, democracy finally came to South Africa. And, um, but my father was originally an immigrant from Northern Europe, from Latvia. And he really was very, very uh, unhappy and uh, uh, um, not comfortable at all about living in that system. So when I finished my high school, which was 1960, 
my father decided to leave South Africa. He said, enough, enough of this, I'm leaving. And he got a job in a place called Northern Rhodesia. Now, just to the north of South Africa were two territories. One was Southern Rhodesia, which is today Zimbabwe. And to the north of that was Northern Rhodesia, named after Cecil Rhodes, the great empire builder, you know, the man who wanted to build a railroad all the way from Cape Town to Cairo and to fly the Union Jack all the way up and down the African continent. Um, so these two areas were named after him. And Northern Rhodesia slap, sat slap bang on, onto the southern border of the Belgian Congo. My father uh, was trained as a watchmaker, um, you know, a little tinkering and little mechanical watches during the days when people still wore mechanical watches, not electronic ones like <laughs> today. And so he took a job as a watchmaker in a little jewelry store in a tiny town in northern Rhodesia in an area known as the Copper Belt, which is right to the south of the, Cong of the border of the Congo. Copper mining, that was what was going on over there. And other than that, nothing else really. But copper had a, 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 fetched a very, very good price on the market those days, was an integral part of all sorts of electronics and the building industry and whatever else. So it was a wealthy area. And so it had a, a, a wealthy white community living in the slap bang in the middle of Central Africa mining copper. And so there was this little jewelry store in the small town and he decided to take the job and he went up there. Now I had fallen in love with the movies as a child. My mother was an avid film goer and she used to take me to everything she saw. I think I was exposed to my first film. I think it was an Esther Williams Red Skelton musical extravaganza. And I saw it when I was four years old. <laughs> And I said to her, wow, you know, <laughs> I remember vividly, uh, she was sitting at a singer sewing machine after we saw the film doing something and I, and I couldn't, couldn't get this movie out of my mind. And I said, where does that come from? You know, and, and who are all those people that we saw? Um, and she said, well, the, the film came from a place called America, you know, and she explained all that to me. And I fell in love with the movies and my dream was to go to this place where they made films. I wanted to go and work in Hollywood as a child. And I grew up uh, with this dream in mind. A cousin of mine eventually gave me a used eight millimeter cine camera. And with that, I started making films for my friends, birthday parties, sporting events at school, the debating society when I was in high school, uh, things of that nature. So my dream was to become a filmmaker and I was already doing this when I was a teenager. So by the time I reached the end of my high school career, you know, I was all ready to take on the world and make movies. And I had seen films like The African Queen and King Solomon's Mines and all the Tarzan films. So when my father took this job up in Central Africa, I thought, oh my word, I'm going along and I am going to start making films about Africa. How naive can you be, you know, thinking that I have no background, I have no education in the topic. There is, is there a film up there in the jungle? But nevertheless, my mother said to me, she said, you're not coming along with this. You've got to get yourself an education. You're going to go to university and carve, carve a life for, for yourself. And I said, I'm not, I'm coming with you. I want to go and uh, um, uh, um, live there, up there with you, which I did. And when I got up there, I was absolutely mortified because there was nothing except a big hole in the ground where they were digging copper and this little town on the, on the edge of it. And my father was working in this little jewelry store. And I thought, what on earth am I going to do here? Because from horizon to horizon was just bush and jungle and nothing else. 
you know, and wisps of smoke coming up from little villages. So it was very nice for me to go out on weekends and make movies about those places, but this was, there was no place for me to carve a career out of that. However, manna dropped out of heaven one day because I read the local newspaper. There was a little rag that served these little copper mining towns. And in there was a tiny little ad for staff for a new television station that was being built. It was being built by a British company partly British, partly South African. And they were building this little television station in a town called Kitwe on the Copper Belt. And when I saw this, of course, they weren't looking for producers and directors and cameramen and people like that. All of those people kept, were brought out from, from mainly from the UK. Um, but they were looking for staff like drivers and cleaners and that sort of thing. And I thought, I have got to get into this place and get a job. And I knocked on the door and I begged and pleaded. And, you know, I think I made an impression on them purely because of my background making films as, as an amateur. Uh, because I was asked all sorts of questions and I said, yeah, you know, composition is important and things like that. I, I, get, I guess I impressed the man who uh, interviewed me and I did get a job. And so I started working in this little, this was the first television station in Central Africa. In the mornings, we had educational broadcasts for local black children in the community, in the bush, in the surrounding areas, because there weren't enough teachers to go around. In the afternoon, we had what they called cultural programming, basically for the indigenous tribes who lived in the area, the various ethnic groups. So in the afternoons, truckloads of people would arrive, dancers with drums and rackles and grass skirts and, you know, um, um, do wonderful dances and musical performances in the studio. And at night, we would show other programming for the, the white community, the white audiences. And we would have the best of British and the best of American television programming. Everything on film, flown in, by the way, every single day. And, and, then, and everything on film. Um, and so it was an amazing time because it was the end of the colonial era. Britain was giving away all its colonies and Northern Rhodesia was now destined to become the Republic of Zambia. And so we had representatives coming in there from Whitehall and from Washington and from the bush to discuss this new government that was being formed in order to uh, make the country independent. So I lived in this multifaceted world in this little tiny television station. And um, one day after working there for three years, the country did become independent. It did become Zambia. All of us, and there were only about maybe 30 people on the staff. Um, I did get a job, by the way, first of all, in the props room, but that, that didn't last long because I eventually said to the manager, put me behind a camera, which he did. So I was a, well, I was a cameraman. And we, we all got this little pink slip one day to say, thank you very much. You've all done a sterling job, uh, but in six months, bye-bye, you've got to leave because your jobs have got to be taken over by local people. Well, we understood that. It made perfect sense. The country was now independent and it was time for the local people to take over what we originally, you know, uh, had the um, good fortune to, to be part of. It was now their turn to run their country and run the station. And so the government nationalized the station and fired all of us. And my dilemma was, what was I going to do now? Now, of course, I, I still had this, I nurtured this dream of going to Hollywood and working in 
big movies, but I mean, how possible was that? There was absolutely no avenue, no, 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 no remote way of me being able to do that. And, you know, I thought about going back to South Africa where there was a thriving film industry, even then we're talking about 1960, where it was about 1964, 65 now. And, uh, but I didn't particularly want to go back to South Africa because of the apartheid system. And so we had a wonderful young guy who worked for us as a servant at home. We all had servants, of course, even then. And this guy wasn't very much older than me. You know, he used to mow the lawn, wash the dishes, wash the car, you know, help my mother in the kitchen, all that sort of thing. And he was, his name was David Fury. He was a lovely man. And uh, his dream was to one day own his own uh, photographic business for weddings. And so one Christmas we gave him a camera, which he actually, you know, changed his life. And so he and I had a lot in common. So when I used to go out into the bush making films, he would come with me with his camera. And so we were very good friends, David and I. And late that night, I got back uh, from the station after we'd all been fired and I was as depressed as can be. And the next morning when I got up, I said, David, a terrible thing has happened. And he said, what? And I said, you know, I've been fired. And he said, oh no, why? And I said, well, because my job's going to be taken over by somebody like you. But what am I going to do now? And he said, um, he thought for a moment and he said, don't worry. Um, I will try to find someone who can help you. And I thought, what on earth could he do? I mean, how, how, how could he possibly find anybody? Could, what's he talking about? But I put my trust in him. I said, fine, whatever you say. So it was agreed that on whatever the day was, let's say it was a Thursday afternoon, it was his day off, my day off. And there we were, he and I, in my little beat up secondhand car, when driving into the bush on a little dirt road to a little African village, not far from a town called Ndola, and when we got there, he said, yeah, yeah, this is the place, this is the place. We have to look for a certain hut. And we found it. And he said, that's the place, park the car, which I did. And he went to the door and he knocked on this door, this little tiny, small, little concrete hut. And there was a door, door in the front. And he knocked on the door and this ancient little woman arrived. She was wrinkled and old. I couldn't, I don't think she could see very well. Her eyes were sort of glazed over. Uh, with age and she could speak no English and you know this is the magic of Africa how did he arrange that who arranged it for him how was all this set up? I had no idea and I thought this is like an adventure what, let's see what's what's going to happen today and uh, so we went inside this little hut and she told us to sit down on the floor and on the floor was a grass mat and on the middle of this grass mat was a little African skin bag and on the on the the floors of this little room, it was very spartanly, you know, furnished. There was nothing, maybe a couch or a you know a table or two, but lots of shelving with strange objects on them, little skulls and little containers with barks and berries and bulbs and herbs and feathers and animal skins and all sorts of weird things. So I knew, ah, you know, this woman has to be some sort of a shaman or other. You know, let's see what she has to say. And she told us to sit down on the floor and there was this grass mat and there was this little bag and she took the bag and she shook it and it went clink, 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 clink as though it was filled with marbles. That was the sound of it. And she said to David to tell me to pick up the bag, blow into it and say my name, which I did. 
And then she took a little tin of snuff, which she offered me, and she, snuff, as you know, is ground up tobacco leaves. And she said, take a pinch of that and sprinkle it into the bag. And that is an offering to your ancestors because your ancestors are here today. And they are the ones who are going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And you do that as an offering to them, which I did. And then she shook the bag and she turned it upside down and all these little bones and stones and little trinkets fell out onto the grass mat. And the bones, uh, this is the, 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 the paradigm that the, the African shamans use is that bones are the, are the medium between the, the, the real world and the spirit world. And the bones have to come from specific animals like a lion, a hyena, a crocodile, I think an antelope of some kind and one or two others. And then they can add their own bits and pieces, whatever they relate to, maybe a dice, you know, maybe a, 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 a piece of bark or a little, little wood um, object of some sort or another. Whatever they, the shaman relates to, um, they add to their kit of bones. And then the way the bones fall, if the lion bone is upside down and, and is covered by another bone, it means something. Like, for example, strength would be, you know, that, that some, 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 there would be a negative influence over a, a positive influence in your life. And so they interpret these things in sometimes in very, very, very sophisticated ways. And I have seen this done umpteen times, but this was my first real exposure to what the, the, the system was all about because what she did was once she looked at the bones she went like this and she suddenly covered her eyes and she said oh my god i can't see anything and david said she says she can't see through the bright lights what are the bright lights she said it's to do with your work what are the bright lights well she had no idea what i did for a living she was seeing the bright lights of the television studio and the minute I heard that, I thought to myself, you'd better pay very, very careful attention to what this little old lady has to say to you, because this is not nonsense. She is actually seeing things that you don't see in those bones. She's, whatever it is, listen to what it is that she has to tell you. And so she started almost babbling information nonstop for about an hour. And David was doing his best to try and keep pace with her, uh, to translate what she was saying to me. And, you know, the kind of things this woman told me was astounding. She, uh, this, uh, for example, she told me that I would have two wives eventually. She told me that I would have four children. She even named the number of grandchildren I would eventually have. I wasn't married at the time. I had no intention of getting married. I had no idea what any of my future life would be about. And here she was telling me two wives, four children, seven grandchildren, you know, and she was spot on because all of things, these things turned out exactly as she foresaw them. And one of the first things, and this is what I was, was, was waiting for, is she said to David, she said, tell him not to worry because he is going to cross the big water. And he's going to go into that direction. And she points towards the north. Now, I have no idea what she means by crossing the big water and going towards the north. What, what does it mean? I've, I had no idea at the time. But that's the, that's the first thing she said, which was for me an indication of what may, may transpire, what may come, where I may, you know, where my life may go. And then all sorts of other things started coming out. Like, for example, she said to him, one day in his work, he will go to a place where there are even more big lights 
and very famous people. And she said to him, in his work one day he will go to a world where there is no color at all. It is only white, no colors there at all. I thought, what on earth is, does she mean? She said to him, he must be very careful because in his work one day he will be in the bush again and he will, he, his life will almost will be in danger because there will be a great beast and his, his, his life will be in great, great danger. He has to be very careful. She said all of these things, and none of them made any sense at all. She said to me, uh, another thing that she said to him was, uh, he will go on, on the water one day and the water will also try to take his life, this big water. I have no idea what she meant by big water, but the most, one of the strangest things she said to him was, you tell him that one day he will meet a man who was very, very close to the most evil man who ever lived. And that sounded very scary to me when she told, when she said that to him. And I had no idea what it meant. Anyway, I filed all this information away in my head and I tried to keep notes. And you know, it's only when these events unfolded that I realized how accurate this woman was. And here's the first thing that came about. What I did after I'd seen her and you know, David and I tried to, to process what she, what she told me, but it made no sense whatsoever. So I did have to leave Zambia and I did go back to South Africa because it, that was the only option available to me. And I got a job in the film industry, which was thriving at the time. And I was there for about 18 months, but I got a visa and I emigrated to Canada. And so those days, we're talking about 1966 now, you didn't fly, if you, especially if you had a lot of baggage, you would go by sea. Everyone traveled by sea. Those were the days of sea travel. Not big cruise liners, but that was the mode of transport from one place to another, as opposed to air travel today. And so the, the trip from, South, from Cape Town to Southampton, which was the first part of my journey, took two weeks. And then from Southampton, I was going to go up to Liverpool and from Liverpool across to Montreal on another ship. And that was my, my immigration route. So the first part was Cape Town to Southampton. And I was on a ship and I said, took about 14 weeks. And halfway through the journey, I went up on deck one night as I did every single night because I used to gaze at the sky. I loved, always loved gazing at the stars. And I used to notice as, this, as, as we moved every day, the sky was changing. The star patterns were moving. They were actually altering. There were new stars appearing on the Northern horizon and familiar ones disappearing down behind the horizon in the South. And I was suddenly aware of the fact that, my goodness, I am actually moving from one hemisphere to another. It's a slow process, unlike air travel, where you get in one place and you get on another, you don't know that you've moved. But on a ship, you have the capability of sensing that by seeing the sky change at night. And I was suddenly aware of the fact that, my goodness, I'm going from the, north, from the south to the north on the Atlantic Ocean. And, oh, my God, that's what that little old lady meant on the big water. That's what the ocean is. And I suddenly realized that she was right about that. And on and on, the things that she predicted happened in my life again and again and again and again. Now, I, I never expected them, and I never knew when they were going to happen. But when they did, I recognized them as being events that this woman had predicted. I'll give you another example of when she talked about that, the thing about the great beast. 
I, 1967, I was back in, 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 in Africa and I took a job uh, as a cameraman on a safari in Mozambique. There were three very, very wealthy Americans who went out there on a big hunting safari and hunting wild animals never made sense to me at all. I could never understand what the fun was about doing that. And that's why I took the job. Um, and um, the, one of the hunters uh, tried to shoot an elephant and the herd stampeded. And I was behind the, the this one of these uh, hunters who uh, had paid for the safari. This one of the Americans. I mean, there was a there was a there was a, a white hunter behind me who was a local guy, uh, and he'd picked out the elephant that the man should shoot, an old bull. And you know he was standing behind me, but the the, the American hunter was standing in front of me with his rifle. And when he shot, he missed, and the herd absolutely panicked, and they stampeded in every direction. It was dust and chaos. And when the dust sort of dissipated, I could see was this, there was still a single cow, a female elephant, standing absolutely still in the middle of where the herd was. And why? It's because she had a baby and there was a little baby elephant next to her, her, her calf. And she knew that her calf was in danger because there was a man with a gun. They knew perfectly well what guns were. And she decided to charge him. And he was standing right in front of me and she came stampeding towards us. And all I could hear in the background was all the white hunter saying, you know, run, run, get out of the way, get out of the way. I was frozen in time. I could not move. But the American guy did run out of my shot. So in my shot, all I have is the face of this elephant getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as she's charging towards me. Now, she wasn't running for me. She was running for the guy who tried to shoot, who she thought, you know, imperiled her, 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 her baby. And she couldn't stop. If, 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 if she had run all the way, she would have killed me. And about six feet away from me, maybe 10 feet away from me, I hear this, this shot behind me, bam! And in front of me, this, 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 this car, she was shot directly between her eyes. And she fell onto her uh, um, forelegs, her forelegs folded. And then she lay down and she stared at me and her eyes suddenly glazed over and she rolled over onto her side and her vision, her, her eyes were locked with mine and she died. And ever since then, I know that the spirit of that animal has been with mine. We connected in some strange and mysterious way. And I'll tell you why um, I, I, I don't doubt this for one single moment. I have an absolute passion about elephants and that event absolutely, I mean, I was, overwrought about this. This for me was one of the most tragic things I'd ever seen. Um, and, you know, um, because many, many times, years and years and years later, when I saw other shamans in South Africa, Sangomas, as they call themselves, and they would throw the bones. And the very first thing they would always say to me was, what is this elephant that we see with you? So it's not my imagination I know that the spirit of that elephant, Ndlovu, which is the Zulu word for an elephant, they always say, what's this Ndlovu you've got? And I know that that, that, that that female elephant's soul, almost in some way or another, in tandem with my own, has been with me as a protective spirit. She knew that I wasn't the one uh, who was, uh, you know, um, intending to kill her at, at all. So we, we kind of made this weird spiritual connection. I have no way of explaining it, but I know that she's with me. 
And um, the interesting thing is after this horrible event that night, we were back at base camp and everybody was drinking a lot of gin and martinis and whatever else and vodka. But I was sitting on my own on the side of this grass hut um, in Mozambique in this beautiful, beautiful valley of the Zinav hunting concession reserve. It was like the Garden of Eden. It was just wonderful those days. Um, and I was sitting on my own just processing the events of the day and this horrible event that had happened. And it suddenly realized, oh my Lord, again, that woman, beware of the great beast. It will almost kill you as part of your work. It will almost, she foresaw that event as well. And again, and again, and again, the white world, for example, 1991, I was doing a scientific uh, documentary uh, with the National Academy of Sciences here in the United States for the public broadcasting system. Um, on an, a scientific expedition to Antarctica to basically de to determine whether the ozone hole was getting any bigger. Um, I had this, the scientist uh, who, who got the Nobel Prize for chemistry for discovering it. And we had a bunch of other scientists with us on this icebreaker. We had a Norwegian crew, but the ship was a lot of American scientists. And we spent about six weeks down in Antarctica testing the waters, testing the health of Mother Earth, because down there, there are no urban communities, there are no human populations at all. So if you want to see if Mother Earth is healthy or not, go down to Antarctica, put a thermometer in there and see if things are good or not. And it was clear that things were not as well as they, as they could be. And this is 30 years ago. The seas were getting more acidic, the ozone hole was getting bigger and the level of carbon dioxide and methane gases in the atmosphere were going up. And you can see that by going into an ice core, you drill uh, into the ice and you take out a big block of solid ice and all the little air bubbles in there, which go back centuries, you can check what's inside those air bubbles and you could see where the industrial revolution happened. And you could see how CO2 and methane had been going up and up and up and up in recent years because these air bubbles are time machines. They can tell you things like that. So it was fascinating. The marine ecosystem, everything about Antarctica was in trouble already 30 years ago. And, you know, we discovered this on, on, on that show, but that's not what I'm, uh, what, what uh, the essence of what I'm trying to tell you is about. What really is important was it was Christmas Eve and the captain of the ship decided to stop the ship. Uh, you know, we were riding up on the ice and crunching down and then, you know, moving on. And he said, we'll stop tonight and we'll have a party because it's Christmas, you know. And so you, they, he stopped the ship. And because we were so far south, uh, at that time of the year, it's perpetual daylight. You don't have night at all. There's like a, an hour of twilight at midnight, and that's about all. The rest of it, the sun, the sun is up. The sun shines all the time because you're so, it's so far south. And um, it was about midnight, and I decided to leave the party and go up on the deck of the ship to catch up with my notes. I'm an avid note taker, and as a documentary filmmaker, I've learned one thing. Write every single thing down. You will need it for reference. So I do, it's like someone who keeps a diary, but every opportunity I get, I make notes. So I decided to go up on the deck and I was trying to describe the world we were in. Here we were sitting on this red hold, in this red hold vessel, in this world that was covered in ice. There was no ocean because there was pack ice. From horizon to horizon was just ice. You couldn't see where the horizon ended and the sky began. It was like being in a big white translucent egg. 
And that's what I sort of wrote in my in my notes. I said, it's like you're living in a in a in a world without color. It's white. That's the only thing. And as I wrote those words, I suddenly thought, oh my lord. And I went back 30, 40 years to what that little old lady has said. He will go to a world where there is no color, only white. She was right. She even foresaw that. And you know. It was an uncanny thing, and 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 I'll, I'll just give you one other example of what what uh, what she had told me uh, about this evil man, and this man who knew the most evil human being who ever lived. In 1984, I did a series of documentaries on the history of South African Airways. Now, South African Airways was one of the great international airlines at one point. It flew to all the every continent on the planet, connecting South Africa with the whole world, um, and it pioneered flight throughout Africa. Uh, and it, in conjunction with Imperial Airways during the the the, the days of the empire, uh, it, it it helped carve a, a a route network down through Africa for air travel between London and South Africa, and 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 for 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 uh, in, in because it, South Africa was part of the of of the of the empire as you know, it only got its independence in 1910, uh, and in 1960 it became a republic when it decided to leave the Commonwealth because everyone said apartheid's a naughty thing, you should stop doing that. So they left the Commonwealth. But South Africa was a pioneering airline and it was a very, very good airline, extremely efficient. And it had a wonderful history about it, particularly braving all these routes through Africa. And so as part of the story, I wanted to tell uh, about an incident in the early 30s where the airline ordered three brand new airliners from a factory in Germany. Now, how do you get three brand new airliners? Now, these aren't big machines. They only sat about 14 people, but they were state of the art. And how do you get them all the way from Germany down to Johannesburg, down the length of the African continent? No, no alternative airports to land at, no places to refuel at, no weather forecasting facilities, nothing like that. You know, no maps, no GPS, no nothing. How do you do that? It was a major, major, it was a big deal back in those days. So the delivery flight is one I wanted to sort of not not recreate but talk about in the documentary and my researcher bless her heart she found out that one of the pilots who flew one of these ferry flights or one of these new airliners down to Johannesburg from Germany was still alive not only that she learned through the German uh, foreign office that this guy was quite prepared to give us an interview and I thought, this is, this is gold. I've got to have him in the movie. And not only that, but he was an amateur cinematographer and he took a movie of that flight. And there was a copy of that movie in a lab in Frankfurt. So I was over the moon. So anyway, when we eventually got to Germany as part of our filming, you know, it was arranged through the German foreign office that, we, that they facilitated this interview with this man and that we would meet him and I could interview him and I could also have access to that film that was in the lab in Frankfurt. So it was fantastic. And uh, so we, we, we got to Frankfurt, we you know, looked at the film, we chose the pieces we wanted and now it's time to go and interview the pilot. And I, his name was Hans Bauer, B-A-U-R. And apparently he was highly decorated during the war. He was very well known. So we had a representative from the German foreign office with us at all times particularly for this interview in order to make it smooth and make it all work and whatever else because apparently the pilot spoke no English at all so this guy was going to be our interpreter 
and we took the autobahn from Frankfurt down to Munich uh, because this man lived in a little town not far from Munich. And the night before we do the interview, the man from the foreign office, I called him the man from Bonn. This is before East Germany and West Germany combined. So the, the German government at that time was still based in Bonn. So he was the man from Bonn. And we had dinner the night uh, before we did the interview at a very small, lovely little hotel on the banks of a lake, not far from this little village, uh, Amashi, it was called. And, you know, at about midnight, we, we had quite a lot to drink. And this man, this man from the foreign office, he said to me, how much do you really know about Hans Bar? you know, his history? And I said, well, what else is there to know? What interests me is that de delivery flight, you know, that, that he was part of down Africa. That's what I want to talk to him about. What else is there to know? And he said, I want you to, I want you to promise, don't, don't discuss World War II because he has war injuries. So I said, all right, fine. That's, I, I have no intention of doing that. That's not, that's not what the interview is about. That's not what I want to know from him at all. Um, and I said, I'm sorry about his war injuries, but all I want to know is about that delivery flight back in the 30s. Good, says the guy, but he wasn't satisfied yet. He said to me, but do you promise you won't discuss the war because I have to tell you something? And, here, and I thought, here it comes. What's he going to tell me, you know? And he said to me, and he sort of peered over his glass and he looked at me and he said, do you realize that Kapitan Hans Bauer was the personal pilot of Adolf Hitler? When he told me that, I sobered up instantly because I've interviewed lots of people in my time, but it's not every day that you get a chance to interview a guy like that. And I thought, how on earth <laughs> am I going to deal with this? He was the personal pilot of Adolf Hitler, really? <laughs> I'm going to interview the guy? You're kidding me. <laughs> anyway, we get to this man's house the next day and his wife, it was his third wife, apparently. She met us and she introduced us. She brought us into the, into, into, into the house. He wasn't to be seen. And my crew go in and I, we set up the, the cables and the microphone and you know, set up the camera in the living room of this, this man's little house, his charming little house. And then eventually I hear clump, 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 he, this guy coming down the stairs with his walking stick. So I thought, ah, he's got a limp. That must be the war injury that this man, uh, that man from the foreign office told me about. And, you know, the guy from the, from the foreign office introduces himself to Hans Bar, and then he introduces me to him. And when I shook his hand, it was very, very strange because I thought, you know, that's one handshake away from Adolf Hitler. How many times has Hitler shaken that man's hand? Talk about six degrees of separation. This is one degree of separation from one of the biggest mass murderers of all time. A man who was a tyrant who was responsible for the death of millions of people. I'm not blaming this guy, but he's like one handshake away from the man who was responsible for that. Nevertheless, we did the interview and I put the war out of my mind. Remember, I was told not to discuss the war and I asked him about the delivery flight and he gave us in, in German, of course. And this, this man was my interpreter. The, the, man, the man from Bonn was my interpreter. Um, and so we got 15 minutes of really, really good screen time from him about that amazing flight back in the 30s and how they accomplished it and how it was all achieved. Um, and at the end of it, I said, thank you very much. It was a you know, wonderful interview. We're done. And then he gets up and he's sort of wobbly on his cane. He says to me, he says, I want to show you something, you know, in German. Come and see me. Come, come with me.
and he takes me down to the edge of the of the living room and there's a big framed photograph of him in his uniform with the ss on the cap and next to him is adolf hitler in his uniform and in the background is a Junkers Ju-52 aircraft, which is exactly the same sort of aircraft that we've been talking about in the interview. And the reason why he showed me the image was he said, this is one of the aircraft that we've been talking about. And I said, yeah, yeah, you know, very interesting. Thank you for pointing that out. And then he says, this is me. And he didn't mention the other man in the image. <laughs> but he looked at me and you could see that I was interested. And he said, he said to me, do you want to know about this guy do you know, in German? I had enough German to understand what he meant. And, and I sort of nodded. So it was, I didn't pr pr prompt that. And the man from Bonn just closed his eyes like this. He thought, <laughs> here we go. So he calls me and he says, come and sit down on the couch with me. And uh, he says to his wife, you know, he calls for the wife. She comes and she, she brings a, a silver platters of snacks and food and and drinks schlivovitz and kirschwasser and german beer and lots of good stuff and cheeses and whatever else and but he sits down on the couch with me and he says to his wife bring the photograph albums which she does and they're about six or seven leather bound photograph albums which he puts on this little table in front of us and i'm sitting next to hans bar and he opens the first album and it's the start of a journey through the inner workings, the inner ranks, the inner sanctum of the Third Reich. Images of all of those people who were responsible for the Third Reich, Goering and Boring and Himmler, you name it. They're all in these images with, with Hitler. And every now and again in the photograph is Hans Bauer himself. Now, apparently he tells me that he and Adolf Hitler were very, very close friends. Not only was he his personal pilot, but they were buddies from way back. When he married his first wife, Adolf Hitler gave him his wedding party in Adolf Hitler's apartment in Munich. That's how close they were. And he tells me all about Hitler's character, what a nice guy he was, how friendly he was always to him and his family. I did not talk about the war. I certainly did not talk about the Holocaust or anything of that nature. But this man just offered up all this information and it was a revelation. And I was intrigued by all of this. Uh, this guy opened up his life to me and there were all these images to prove what he was saying. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, when we'd gone through all of this and I, my, my, my head was swimming, I have to tell you. Um, I eventually said to the crew, let's, you know, let's, let's get the cables all wound up and, you know, let's, let's get out of here. It's time to leave. And it must have been about five or six o'clock in the evening where we wrapped everything up and we packed up all our gear. And I think we had two, two vans outside and, uh, you know, we eventually drove off. And I remember looking back through the, through the, 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 the rear end of the van towards um, Hans Bauer and his wife. They were standing outside their little house, waving goodbye to us, just like a little old couple waving goodbye to their, their grandchildren or their, their friends, you know, waving goodbye to their family, innocent as, as can be, you know. But, and as we turned a corner, he disappeared from sight. And it was at that moment that it suddenly hit me, the power of what had happened that day, the extraordinary experience I had just had, a once in a lifetime experience. And it hit me again that this woman had foreseen that 
back in her mud hut in Central Africa all those decades ago, you will meet a man who was very, very close to the most evil man who ever lived. How does one explain that? You know, how does one, how does one um, understand how that could come about? So one of the things that I've learned, I think why I'm telling you all this in such detail and probably wasting your time and wasting everybody else's time. But I think that the takeaway lesson from all of that is that there is so much more uh, to the world and to our connectedness, us all, um, than we know. You know, we're all somehow or another connected to some kind of... As I try to, to say at the end of my book, what I talk about a lot of really interesting experiences I've had, and I don't want to sound boastful about it or, at all, but I've been very blessed and very fortunate to have these amazing experiences. I've made films with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. I did an overview of the Voyager spacecraft mission to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. I've done ethnographic films. I've done all kinds of things. but. You know, some of the wisest people that I have ever known, other than, you know, meeting people in universities and institutions, Princeton and Cornell and NASA and whatever else, but some of the nicest and wisest people I've ever met live in mud hats and see things by using bones and stones. And so the takeaway lesson for me, as I say on the very last page of my book, is it doesn't matter whether, you know, whether you're a person or a pony or a petunia. I think we are all connected to some kind of invisible grid, some kind of field, if you like. I sort of use the analogy of the of the you know the dodgem cars, the bumper cars, at the fairground. You know, they've those little cars where they have little poles at the back, touching this this wire grid on top. And I think we're all we all have something like that little pole, like an antenna connected to a, something like that sort of chicken wire type grid above the ride. There is a grid, there is a field, there is a something, call it the force if it's in using Star Wars terms. I think we're all, all of us are interlocked and interconnected to some kind of a grid. And we're all part of the same fabric of whatever it is that makes the universe tick. And I think that this is on a cosmic level. I have no doubt about that. And it makes me realize, you know, how close all of us are, not just humans, but animals, vegetation, I think everything, wherever there is sentience or consciousness or life, we're all plugged into that same place in the wall. There's the same socket going into the power grid that makes us all tick and work and function. I totally believe that. And I've taken great hope and I've, use that very, very often because the, what starts the book is the fact that I, I was diagnosed with a kidney illness back in the 90s. And when, when that happened, uh, the doctor said to me, my nephrologist said to me, and my, uh, he said, you, your condition is idiopathic. In other words, it's a nice medical term for saying, we don't know what it is. We don't know why you've got it. Um, and that was the beginning of my journey because I wanted to know how I could cure myself other than using, you know, uh, Western allopathic methods and the sort of uh, um, uh, chemotherapy cocktails that they were prescribing for me. I thought, is there another way? And that's what took me on a journey back to Africa many, many times uh, to meet shamans 
Sangomas, who I knew could offer me just as much as these white-coated specialists could in the, the best hospitals in the world down here in LA. I would, wanted to partake of both those worlds, that ancient, mystical, mysterious, ancient world of Africa, as well as the modern world of medicine, and tap into both of them in order to heal myself. Is there a way that I could use that system? And you know, my nephrologist once said to me, he said, when, when he first diagnosed me with this illness, he said, I, you, you probably have 10 years and you're either going to be on dialysis or you're going to be dead, one of the two. That was over 30 years ago. And I know for a fact, and I used to tell him that I went back to Africa many times to consult with these Sangomas. And he always used to laugh at me and say, yeah, you and your, you and your witch doctors, you know? And he would laugh at me. But after I wrote the book, I gave him a copy of the book. And he, when he read the book, he, he, he sent me an email. He said, you've actually changed my life. You've changed my perspective of everything because the way you explained it in that book, I had no idea when we used to talk about you and your visits back to Africa in my consulting room because I had 20 minutes with you. Then I had to see my next patient. But when I read what you had to say about what all these people did and what they were capable of doing and being and how you have survived your illness has proven to me that there is more to medicine than I know. And, you know, um, how do you explain all this? Um, so I've learned that, you know, one has to partake of what, wherever you can go in order to derive hope, in order to derive, uh, um, what, healing, in order to continue to survive, no matter how difficult and dangerous and, uh, you know, traumatic things may be, there's always a way around. And go outside the box, think outside the norm, expand your vision, embrace whatever you can to help you to heal and to move forward, because I've done it myself. And I wanted to share this with people, which is one of the reasons why I wrote this book. Lionel, I am just fascinated by your entire journey. As you say, you've had a very blessed life. I'm into all the spiritual things, but this has blown me away. This has truly fascinated me. Like, is it like 60 years since you first had that? When you, it's like a simple change in your life that you're feeling depressed because there's going to be a job loss. David took you and said, it's going to meet this, you know, what could have been like a crazy old lady in a mud hut. But, yeah. you know, from that, she said, you're going to have two wives, four children, yeah. seven grandchildren, you know, the big bees, the water, yeah. the evil man. You know, if you've got one thing, you'd be like, that's quite a coincidence. But your whole mm. life is just, you know, yeah, unfolded yeah. Mm -hmm. as this. And I haven't even touched on, 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 on half of what you told me. And it's all come true. So, you know, that woman, you know, she probably never went further than 10 miles away from that hut. You know, she was probably born in that little village and never went further than that. And Zambia is a landlocked country. There's no ocean there. There's the Zambezi River in the south, and that's all there is, you know. What did she know about the big water? But this woman could see these things. They, she had this, she had visions, and I don't think she understood what she was seeing herself. She was just describing them to me, you know. So there's more to to the world and to the universe than I think any of us um, can be capable of, of 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 even beginning to imagine. And I think it. It's, it's on a cosmic scale. And I think that every single day that we're here is a blessing. 
And I think that we can learn something new every single day. I certainly try that. And it's a lesson I've tried to impart to all of my children. I said to, I said to all of them, all four of them, I said to them, you know, if, you, if, if there's one thing I can leave you guys with, it's this. And it's a, it's a lesson of try to learn one new thing every day. And of course, they always used to laugh at me. And they still think I'm very, you know, I, they still think I'm a bit of a crank and a quack and, you know, uh, uh, today for, for believing in all these things. I mean, I, because I, 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 I totally believe extraterrestrials, UFOs, you know, you name it. I'm, I am into all of these things, not because um, they are fads and they are interesting or that I'm gullible to believe in. Them. But I mean, I, I actually filmed a UFO, by the way, in Canada in 1966. Uh, so, so I've had experiences of that as well. And I've asked many, many times in tribal areas about have they ever had, you know, experiences of, you know, things coming out of the sky. Oh, yes. You know, the sun Bushman of the Kalahari, you know, they, they, they shrug it off and they say, yes, of course, those are the people from the other world. They come here all the time. It's like that's the 14 bus that comes by every, you know, every 11 o'clock. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the, the world and our universe is so extraordinary and so amazing. And, um, you know, one must never give up or lose sight of the fact that there is more than we can ever. There's always more beyond the horizon. And this life is not what it's all about at all. This is just one stop on this great big underground tube station network. I just, I often think of the London Underground and that, and at that one station on the central line is this planet. And the rest of it is, you know, out there in this incredible network. And that's just our little tiny neck of the woods. There's so much more, you know, I think that the universe is filled with life and filled with wisdom and it's filled with benevolence. If one wants to tap into it, it's there. Final Friedberg, I've absolutely loved this from, well, from the very start to the very end. I'm absolutely honoured. I love your stories of hope, spirituality, overcoming like illness, depression, just believing that there is more to life than what might be your current reality and people might be struggling out there with their current reality, just to give them that glimmer of hope. I'm just eternally grateful. So thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's been a great pleasure, Shelley. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review. If you would like to create your own positive changes, you can buy Positive Changes, a self-kick book from all online book retailers or from ShellyFKnight.com. If you need a dollop of positivity until the next episode, come like and follow us over on Facebook at Shelley F. Knight. Life Goes On. As always, I've been Shelley F. Knight and you've been amazing.